0: Welcome to the Tech Rides Podcast, where we feature inspiring stories of entrepreneurship from top business leaders while riding in a cool car. I'm your host, Edwin Marcial. If you would like to see the videos and cool cars we feature on the show, sign up and watch at techrides.io. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun. Today on Tech Rides, I'm writing with serial entrepreneur and investor, David Cummings. David is the founder of the Atlanta Tech Village. ATV is one of the largest tech hubs in America. David built ATV after selling his startup, Pardot, for $100 million. David also runs Atlanta Tech Ventures, through which he invests in some of Atlanta's hottest startups. I'll talk with David about his career as an entrepreneur, what he looks for in the founders and companies he invests in, and the current startup scene in Atlanta. The best part is we get to ride in David's stunning 2017
1: Acura NSX. Hi everyone, I'm Edwin Martial, welcome to Tech Rides. I'm here today with David Cummings, founder of Atlanta Ventures and founder of Atlanta Tech Village, the largest, one of the largest uh, startup hubs in America. David, welcome to Tech Rides.
2: Thanks for having me. Great yeah, to be here. For. We're
1: riding today in your uh, 2017 Acura NSX, which is a real treat. I've been looking forward to this for a while as well.
2: Yeah, I love this car. It's it's the the combination of you know, visceral V6, 500 horsepower plus three electric motors, so 573 total horsepower. So you can creep around the neighborhood in quiet mode and you don't disrupt the the neighbors and you can Unleash it on the track and have a great time. so it's it's really a, a great car.
1: It's fantastic. I, I've uh, I remember back in uh, college, my first job while I was in school, I was working at actually a startup that was uh, building some medical software and one of the doctors uh, founders of that company, he had a ninety one NsX.
2: yeah and,
1: uh, back then that was all the rage.
2: So that was. You know, really the Japanese supercar that you could drive every single day, this daily driver car that had the performance of a Ferrari, such a a breakthrough, you know, from a, a car manufacturing point of view. So really excited that, you know, Acura brought the NSX back here in 2017 after, call it, you know, 15, 20 years of a little hiatus there.
1: So I want to talk about your entrepreneurial journey because you have you always been an entrepreneur it seems like you you got started really early in, in, in college I read that you were you started in Hill out of your dorm room at I did
2: yeah I've always had the entrepreneurial bug you know and Middle school, I taught myself how to write code. You know, a friend of mine on the traveling baseball team gave me a book, Teach Yourself C in 21 wow. Days, and wow.
1: so. C's not easy to learn, either. It's
2: not easy, no. So eighth grade, I was writing code to make sure my math homework was correct. And then ninth grade in high school, I was writing shareware software. Were you uh, making Sir, money with that back then? Yeah, I was making money selling them wow. for $12.95. Wow. And it was full on old school. So they would download the shareware, yeah. Install it on their PC, and then it would have thirty days of content. So you know, thirty SAT vocabulary words.
0: Yeah.
2: And then at the end of the thirty days, it would prompt and say, "Hey, if you want more, send a check, twelve dollars and ninety-five cents, to this residential address in Florida, in Tallahassee, and then we'll email you a code to unlock, okay. you know, a full year's worth of content." And All so right. I was literally in high school. Every day I would get home from school, I'd go check the mailbox at the street and people would send checks in the mail and I would email them back codes to unlock more content. Wow. And it was awesome. You know, checks from all over the U.S., international checks. It was really amazing to be a high schooler collecting money in the mailbox from really all over the world through shareware. That
1: is pretty awesome. In a way, that was like the freemium model you were. Pioneering. Totally, totally. So after high school you went to Duke? And is that where you started Hand & Hill? Is that like, it is. What was the idea behind that?
2: It was software to make it easy for non-technical people to update and maintain a website. Okay. We've been in business for 20 years with Hand & Hill. We've sold tens of millions of dollars worth of that content management system and still growing.
1: So then let's fast forward. So. Was, was part of your next company
2: that you started yeah so with hand and hill i got super involved in sales and marketing trying to figure out how to acquire customers how to make it repeatable how to make it scalable and so i had this idea for building a marketing product that was you know really designed for the business marketers such that it took some of the lessons learned trying to acquire customers for hand and hill and made it so that it was a more scalable, repeatable process. So we started that in 2007, and from a business point of view, it was one of those things where right place at the right time. You know, a couple of years to get to 100 paying customers and build out the infrastructure and a great team and a great culture, and then five years into the business, we were able to sell it to Exact Target, which was quickly bought by Salesforce.com and we hadn't raised any venture capital. The whole team was right here in Atlanta and it was one of the, you know, early SaaS, software as a service success stories in town. So, went from nothing to a hundred million dollar exit in five years. And so that's where the idea for the Atlanta Tech Village really came from. You know, and with the Tech Village, we were really trying to solve a couple different problems. The main one was community, how do we have hundreds if not thousands of entrepreneurs under the same roof how do we go from you know a, an Atlanta market that had lots of great startups but Atlanta has you know lots of communities that are spread out everybody lives in different neighborhoods how can we bring some critical mass to what's going on in the community and so having the tech village made a you know we'll call it a, a center of gravity for the area right this idea that we could have a thousand people under the same roof hundreds of startups all kinds of personalities that's one of my favorite things about entrepreneurs is that they're so optimistic glass half full and so creating a community with a hundred thousand square feet and just all kinds of craziness in a good way really was the big idea entrepreneurs want to be around each other they like sharing ideas they like having the camaraderie And so let's take it and let's just go big with it. And so 103,000 square feet's how big the tech village is now. But there was really an important point there, which was the community side bred more success. And so the big idea from the tech village is by having entrepreneurs around entrepreneurs, we truly believe, and we've demonstrated it, that the chance of success goes up. So entrepreneurs being around each other, they succeed at a higher level and they succeed in a way that's better than being on their own. So another way to say it, Tech Village increases the chance of success of all the entrepreneurs that are in the community. And that's the most important part of the Tech Village. We could have cool building and cool office space and amazing mentors like yourself and amazing investors, but if we're not succeeding at a higher rate and if we're not succeeding at a greater scale, then it's it's all for naught.
1: Yeah, it's really, it creates this uh, really unique atmosphere of uh, serendipity. I mean, you just you just go and, and meet with so many different people. I, I remember just going there uh, pre-pandemic days, <laughs> but mm-hmm. going and, and, and getting coffee and, and being there meeting with somebody and and having three other random meetings that occurred just because, uh, you know, you pass somebody else, you meet somebody else that, that's exactly. coming through, or somebody else comes in exactly. to the space, and, and um, it's
2: And really, we, we've been talking about it for a long time, like engineered serendipity or creating these serendipitous interactions, but it's really hard conceptually to feel the value from that without experiencing it firsthand. It's like, Oh yeah, I'll bump into people in the hallways and that'll be fun. But then you go and you do it and you show up and then you're meeting with Craig and then you bump into somebody else and you bump into somebody else. And then all these relationships start forming and, Oh, you're doing this. You should talk to this other person.
1: Exactly. And
2: it actually works.
1: Right. Right. This which is a big reason why um, Steve Jobs at Apple wanted, you know, when they, when they built their new, uh, headquarters, they put, you know, the, 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 the cafeteria in the center, and a lot of people, to, you know, have to bump into each other on their way to the bathroom. Exactly.
2: And they did the same thing at Pixar yeah. when he yeah. was in charge, yeah. and they created this environment of these serendipitous interactions, these creative collisions.
1: I mean, it's still a pretty big leap from going from there. So like, okay, now you're like, let me go buy a building, right?
2: 100,000 100, square feet, yeah. Coming from a you know 24,000 square feet, which felt massive, we ended up filling it up with the growth of Pardot, so it all worked out amazingly well. But going from 24,000 feet with a company that was growing super fast to a 100,000 feet that was totally empty and no company to come with it, right? So Pardot stayed. with Salesforce in the original building right it it was it was daunting but you know it was all part of the plan that you know we're gonna have space to grow into and it'll take a while and we'll figure it out and it did it exceeded expectations and you
1: completely you know transformed the building gutted it changed the entire Mm -hmm. design it was the old um the atlanta business chronicle right that's right in terms of the um the venture aspect of it for Atlanta Ventures. Did you start Atlanta Ventures right then at the same time? Mm-hmm.
2: Right at the, yeah. Upon selling Pardot, started Atlanta Ventures, and then six weeks after selling Pardot, bought the Tech Village. And from a business point of view, it's sort of like a short-term, short term short-term hotel, you know, like yeah. these 30 day hotels. Yeah. And that's how it is. So it's a lot more operationally heavy, you know, no leases, people, you know, paid 30 days at a time. And so very much uh, an active, sort of a hospitality venture, a little bit of a real estate venture, but very different than, you know, software. But I quickly learned once we filled up the tech village with tenants, you know, the massive, massive difference between software and real estate is that real estate, once you fill it up, there's no more inventory available. Right. So when we filled up the tech village, people wanted to move in and to add one incremental square foot of space, there's no way to do it. We'd have to go buy another building. So, I quickly learned that the software world is amazing in that we have infinite inventory. Right. Right. We can just keep selling more licenses, or see, you know, we add more servers in the cloud. But right. It's very easy to add more servers in the cloud than it is to go buy another building or right. you know, expand someplace else.
1: So I'm curious. You, you I think you mentioned that at ParDot. You, you guys never took any money, outside money, venture. Mm-hmm. But then now, then shortly after that, you now are a VC. Was mm-hmm. that by design at Pardot not to take venture money? Or how do you view when, it, you know, um, when it's right for a startup to, to take outside money?
2: So for us, we tried really hard to raise money. Oh, we pitched man. tons of VCs at Pardot. We flew to Boston, we flew to California multiple times. And it was a strange time in the world. This is This is 2010, so a few years after the Great Recession. Valuations were really depressed. Our business was growing really nicely. And so we got to the term sheet stage and then just did some spreadsheet math. And it was clear that it didn't make sense to raise money because we were growing really efficiently. And then from a valuations point of view. So we could have raised a few million bucks and, you know, sold a big chunk of the business or we could keep growing a little bit slower, but own, you know, the vast majority of the business in addition to the employees and control our own destiny. Right. And it worked out great. Nowadays, obviously, you know, my advice to entrepreneurs is, you know, figure out what that relationship is between growth rate and burn rate and does it make sense to give up control or does it make sense to bring on outside you know investors to get involved in the business and it really just depends on you know what valuation you can get on what terms but the general rule of thumb that i have is somewhere in the five to one ratio so if you raise a dollar of capital and you can make that dollar of capital the business five dollars more valuable from an enterprise value point of view it probably makes sense
0: right
2: so you put a dollar into the machine and the machine becomes five dollars more valuable than do it right. too often entrepreneurs go raise five million dollars and put the capital to work and the business only becomes ten million dollars more valuable at which case oftentimes it doesn't make sense Because of what equity and what rights and what terms you had to give up to the investors.
1: Yeah. So, uh, as somebody who now is running a venture fund, what what do you look for in companies that that you want to invest in? Like, what what are the you know key metrics that you're looking at?
2: So we like most of our investments are at the earliest stage. So they're from startups from scratch. We like ideas on napkins. And we're looking for markets that are really small right now. So small that most people don't care. Not much competition yet, but they're growing really fast. So if you squint and you look around the corner and look out five years in advance, maybe seven years, you're like, yes, this thing is gonna have a big market. But it's tiny today, so small but fast growing on the market side. And then on the people side, of course, it's all about Grit and resilience. It's all about people who are going to run through brick walls and just figure out how to make it work.
1: So we're talking about founders, and and you you said you like to invest in early early companies. but really it's just a, an idea, and that's kind of the riskiest mm-hmm. time to uh, to invest. How do you mitigate that risk if it's so early? I mean you're betting really on the founders and an idea at that point right
2: yeah totally on the founders and nine times out of ten the idea morphs with time right you know it pivots into something else or you're talking to a potential customer and they say that sounds nice but i really have this issue over here and then you go down that rabbit trail and what we found is that you bet on the person and then really work hard and really try to be as helpful as possible to find the best idea. So I'm really not attached to specific ideas, but I do like thinking through markets. So let's pick a good market. Let's talk about, you know, a starting point, an idea in that market, but then let's be open-minded to find an even better opportunity within that market. So it's more markets and less ideas, Right. knowing that starting somewhere we can zig and zag to find the best idea within whatever sandbox we're playing in.
1: Right, so what kind of qualities are you looking for in a founder? We
2: really like ones that have a chip on their shoulder. They want yeah. to prove something. They want to show the world they can do it. They really want to be successful, but in a way that is much more so than the average person. So they have, they have something about them that says like they are going to succeed they're gonna figure it out. And then also look for patterns or clues around work ethic and grit and resilience. One of my favorites, obviously, is the failed entrepreneur, right? Somebody who's been an entrepreneur, it didn't work, which is most of the time. Right. But then they want to go do it again. They go start their next startup and they still believe they can be successful. That's my favorite. So the failed entrepreneur that's doing it again.
1: Why is that your favorite? I mean, wouldn't some people would say, well, maybe if, if it didn't work out the first time, and I know most startups fail, so or a lot of them do, but wouldn't you be nervous that hey, maybe they were the part of the problem?
2: Absolutely, that's definitely a, a, a huge concern. But the flip side of it is, after having a startup that didn't work, and then going and doing it again, the entrepreneurs are much more coachable. They're much more open to feedback. The entrepreneurs are hungrier. They already know what they're getting into in terms of expectations. Right. And then they're also more adaptable to what the market wants. You know, one of the m- most common reasons for entrepreneur failure is that they build the field of dreams. They think the market wants it and then nobody shows up for it. The second time around they're much more likely to be open to feedback. They're much, their ears and their mindset is much more attuned to, hey, let me figure out what the market wants as opposed to just what I think the market wants.
1: Right.
2: So it all falls under that umbrella of more adaptable, more coachable, but yet they're still crazy enough to want to do it again.
1: You've mentioned markets a few times, which I think it's interesting how you look at it. Are there any particular markets that you're interested in or that you focus on or are you pretty open uh, to learning and expanding into different markets as long as you think there's an opportunity and the right founder?
2: Yeah, super open on the market side. There's a bunch that I'm personally interested in. Some of the trends that I like, one is the corporation of one, which is a fancy way of saying all of these consultants and freelancers and the gig economy. Yeah. I think is super fascinating, you know, the societal shift away from the big company or even the small company where it's a bunch of freelancers that do really high skilled jobs. So they do it on their own time and they do it in their own way. Right. So that's a market that I think is super interesting. Another market that I really like is around nutrition and food and plant-based diets and all the different trends around what you put into your body is one of the biggest determinants of health. Whereas a society, we've built up amazing fast food chains and we've built up amazing food delivery services and grocery stores, but 99% of that stuff is garbage in terms of fuel for your body. So I think that whole area has a bunch of opportunity. And then of course, technology, anything related to sales and marketing and product development, and Technology like hardcore technologies, robotics, those are all markets, very broadly speaking, that I find interesting.
1: In terms of uh, failure and lessons, and you know, what are some of the things that you kind of mistakes you've made and things you've learned from as an investor or as an entrepreneur yourself?
2: So, the most common mistakes one is building a product that's only incrementally better than what's available in the market so you build a new widget it's only 10 percent better than the standard widget on the market versus pardot in the early days marketing automation for marketers for b2b marketers it was 10 times better than anything they could do themselves so this idea of a revolutionary product versus just an evolutionary product. Right. 10x better versus 10% better. And so I think most entrepreneur ideas, at least their initial ideas, are only incrementally better and that's a super common reason why most entrepreneurs fail. They don't make something that's sufficiently different in the market. One way I heard it described, which I really liked, is you want to be the orange in a sea of apples, right? Right. It's still fruit, right? it's still food, but you look out at a sea of apples that are all green, and then you see this one orange. It's really different. It really stands out. It's clearly differentiated from the other offerings in the market.
1: When you say that, it reminds me of Zoom. You know, Zoom became such a powerful force during the pandemic, but if you think back to pre-pandemic, there were so many other platforms that we're doing exactly or, or offering them, yeah
2: uh, webex and blue jeans and there's tons of them
1: and somehow here comes zoom out of nowhere and just because they made it easy to use and uh,
2: they were the easiest they were also the very best at the compression technology yeah so when you had shaky bandwidth they were able to smooth it out the audio side they focused on more so than the video side when your bandwidth dropped or when your bandwidth became unstable. So the ease of use plus the quality of being able to meet even when you're in an environment of all these challenges when it comes to bandwidth, they really nailed it. They did the best.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's just an example of even though there's competition out there, uh, you can always do something better.
2: Exactly. And so the question, the big question is, is that thing you do better Ten times better than the average, or is it only ten percent better?
1: Right. What are some things that you wish that entrepreneurs knew or thought about, uh, or maybe you know before they got into being starting their own business that maybe doesn't get talked about as
0: much?
2: I think you know, as a society, we're very focused on following directions. You know, do this in school and you get an A. Yeah. Take this test if you want to go to, you know, get your license in this thing but the reality is that you know the vast majority of the world is not here's what you have to do to succeed the vast majority of the world is you figure it out as you go
1: right
2: and so i would encourage entrepreneurs to just start figuring things out you know if you want to be an entrepreneur but you don't have an idea you know go start an ebay business go start an amazon store just do something go start a pressure wash business just Get in business for yourself, even if it's a side hustle, because there's so many unknowns. Right. And even if you're doing something that isn't innovative, you're still developing that muscle of just figuring things out as you go.
1: Well, and, and also the skill set of just running your own business, which is very different than for working for somebody else. That's
2: right. There's so many little details from accounting to payroll, if you have employees, to insurance, to sales and marketing, you know, acquiring customers is often the most difficult thing right. for a lot of different reasons. I think yeah. another piece of advice on the general category, and it's common sense, but just stay really close to the customer. Just listen to what they want, under, truly understand them. Don't just check the box that you had a call with them and then constantly iterate based on the feedback, not necessarily do everything the customer wants, but take that feedback from the customer, incorporate it into your vision, into your opinion of where the market's going and then deliver that opinionated future. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs, it's easy to just build stuff in a vacuum and not truly listen to the market and iterate that way.
1: Yeah, exactly. and, and a lot of it is just the, the grind, and, and it is a grind. Because uh, you know, I think from the outside in, you can look at it and be like, okay, you know, this company grew X or raised this much money. And,
0: yeah, it's
2: got this cool office or this yeah. fancy car, right. and you're like, oh, I want to do that.
1: Yeah, or you know, you know, grew to this amount, or you know, in our case, had, you know, we had a huge IPO. But but what you don't see is all the. The grind and the work that goes in between all those those milestones, and
2: um, yeah, and all the messiness and all the chaos and right. the uncertainty, the high highs and low right. lows.
1: And you gotta kind of like want that and, and enjoy that in a way, in a weird way,
2: right? Um, and to your point on the grind, you know, every entrepreneur I know that's been super successful has put in the work. It has never been a cakewalk.
1: Right.
2: You gotta put in a lot more effort than the typical job.
1: Right. In terms of Atlanta, you know, what are the things that you think that, you know, are, are going well and, and what do you think some things that you think could, could um, be better and there are still some growing pains? I know for a while people would always say, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of businesses here, a lot of startups. Uh, there's a lot of talent, um, tech talent, people, you know, with the, the Georgia Tech and other surrounding universities. But the big issue was, you know, raising money. And, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't as easy as ra- to raise money, although it sounds like that's changing.
2: Dramatically changed.
1: Yeah. So what what are some of the things you still see?
2: Yeah. On the going well side, we are just crushing it with things like unicorns, right? So in the startup world, unicorn is a private company that's valued at $1 billion or more, just an astronomical amount of money. And historically in Atlanta, we would have one unicorn every three to four years. Now, this, you know, the past 12 months, we've had one unicorn per quarter. You know, we've had four or five unicorns just in the past 12 months, which is phenomenal. On the areas that we can do better, you know, after it's a, a unicorn and you've raised all this money and you have this amazing valuation, you still got to have publicly traded companies, right? ICE is publicly traded, owns the New York Stock Exchange, companies that are publicly traded get. 10X, if not 100X, the publicity and the analysts and the news coverage and everything else. And so the opportunity from an Atlanta point of view, we really need to have multiple tech IPOs per year. So obviously having the unicorns shows that we have tons of companies that are getting close to being IPO ready or they probably are IPO ready in some cases. But now we need to see that next level. we're weak in terms of local publicly traded tech companies. We have some, but not a bunch. It's
1: interesting you say that because I remember when we were building Ice that that was our, our stated goal was to go public. And and back, you know, in the early 2000s, that was kind of like if you were a startup, you wanted to go public. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, before the dot-com bust, you know, there were a lot of companies went public, but it seemed like after that. And we went public in, in 05, but it seemed like after that, you know, and more recently, that going public hasn't been as much the goal. It's, there, there's been other ways to exit and make money, and, and seems like selling to another company has really been really more the goal. But now, in the last year or so, SPACs have become really popular. SPACs
2: are crazy popular. Um, I think at the end of the day, if you want to have a large, enduring, independent company, IPO is the only way to go. Our public company is the only way to go yeah and so that is part of the mentality right the goal of building a large business versus the goal of building a great business that you know you eventually sell to a strategic but to your point historically it's been more so hey we'll build a great business and somebody will buy us someday and changing that mindset that no we want to build a large independent public company and so i do think that's part of the culture that is evolving. We're not there yet by any means but more success stories, more companies going public will then set the tone and the expectations and the potential and so I think public company success will breed even more public company success in our local community.
1: I can see the energy changing and growing even the last year or so.
2: And part of that is the credibility outside the region. Obviously we've been cheerleaders inside of our region forever and we we know that good stuff is here good stuff is happening but on the national and global scale frankly nobody cares unless there's big dollars at play right that's when people start noticing and so the unicorns and the financing rounds of the unicorns and the ipos those are big dollars and so on a national and global scale you know, for obvious reasons, they follow the dollars. And so the more success we have on that front, the more credibility and the more notoriety we get on those much larger stages.
1: Well, David, thank you for being on Tech Rides. It's really, I really enjoy this drive.
2: Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tech Rides Podcast. If you like what you heard, please sign up at techrides.io and look for new podcasts and videos down the road. We will be releasing podcast versions of our past videos and also introduce new podcasts on a regular basis. Tech Rides, smart people, sweet rides, where industry leaders ride shotgun.